I'm sorry for the formality of the microphone, but it's the best way to make a recording for other people to hear. And um, I know I listen to it, so somebody else might too. So tonight we want to um, start with an opportunity to share testimonies, but in two regards. One of them is uh, one of the things we want to do with our plan to uh, Who's Your One, that evangelistic outreach. Um, we wanted to see if we could share on a, on a Sunday night how things are going and, and if anybody has any questions or concerns. And then also, just in general, we can always share what the Lord has been doing in our life recently. Are you hearing it okay, Gene? Are you hearing it all right? All right. <clears throat> it sounded like, uh, it looked like maybe you were struggling with it some minutes. So. Um, so anyone, does anyone have anything to share about who's your one? Joel? Uh, if you read one of Pastor's emails this week, you heard a synopsis of this. But um, <clears throat> on Tuesday, I was driving with a guy from work. His name is Grant. He finished college like a year ago or so, so he's pretty young. Um, he's got a very open attitude towards life, very um, sort of peaceful in a lot of ways and open maybe to, to religion or understanding more about that. Uh, anyway, so we were we were driving in the truck Tuesday morning, and we were just talking about what we did the night before. And I said, "Well, I was at a board meeting for my church," and and he said, "Well, what do you guys do at a board meeting?" And so I got to explain that our board meetings are not B O R E D meetings, but that we, you know, we do a little bit of logistics, administrative, financial stuff like that. But we spend a lot of time uh, praying for each other. And then I, I mentioned that. We've been growing a lot as a board in that we were expanding the, the people who teach, for example. So it's not just the pastor who preaches every single Sunday or every single night. He said the, I said the board members have an expectation to teach. And so I shared the synopsis of the, or the, the short part of the verse, uh, elder qualifications, you know, that an elder or a deacon is one who is apt or able to teach. And so I was like, well, he's not objecting to this conversation, so I'm going to keep going. And so he said, oh, yeah, I remember you were preparing something a couple of weeks ago. And I said, yep. And, and I said, and I'm, I'm going to be speaking again sometime in September. And he said, well, what are you going to be speaking on? So I said, well, I'm going to speak about a guy named Zacchaeus. I said, there's a little song that we sang in Sunday school. So I sang him the Zacchaeus song. And then I explained, <laughs> I explained him the Zacchaeus song. And I, I shared a little bit about who Zacchaeus was as a character. He was a tax collector. And so... Uh, not necessarily one who is uh, the most popular in his society. And so I shared uh, the Jesus, about Jesus' love for him, Jesus noticing and observing Zacchaeus, Jesus going to his house and sharing a meal. And that action, that demonstration of love uh, being so profound to Zacchaeus that he exclaims, you know, if I've cheated anybody, I'll give back X number of times what I stole from them. And I said, and so I was able to sort of transition that, and I said, there's... You know, that's kind of the story of who Jesus is. He loves us, he cares for us, and that, that's a profound impact on my life. And so I shared the verse, um, I think it's from John 10, I might be wrong, but the thief comes to steal and destroy, but I come to give abundant life, is what Jesus said. And so I shared about that. And, um, and we also, because in our, our last deacon meeting, we, we spent about an hour uh, talking about fears that we have when it comes to sharing the gospel 
So when you think about sharing the gospel, what are the immediate fears that pop up? So we talked about, I talked about fears with Grant, and I said, and not necessarily about evangelism, but I, I shared, you know, one of my struggles in life is I often feel like a failure. There's a lie in my head that says, you're a failure, you're an imposter, you don't belong, nothing you do is ever any good. And for me personally, it's been an exercise of working through the gospel, acknowledging that, yeah, a lot of ways, many ways, ultimately we are failures, but it's only through God's grace. So I got to share uh, about Jesus' love and his grace, helping me overcome that fear of, of failure and insecurity in those ways. And I don't know how I got on it, but then I, I jumped right into John 3.16 and was able to just very quickly just show out or throw out John 3.16. So it was, it was not a long conversation, um, but at like each little turning point, I was like, well, I'm going to take another step forward and share another thing, you know. And so I was, it wasn't like a full-on gospel presentation, but it was a gospel-oriented conversation and one that I was surprised that he was open to kind of hearing more and he didn't object and had good questions. So uh, very positive. Um, so Grant is not my one. Uh, my, my one is my neighbor, Shirley. But Grant needs Jesus, and so he can be my two. Yeah. Were you um, nervous or afraid? Did it get all freaky at the moment, or did it just all fell down? Yeah. So that's good. That's what God's grace is about. Anyone else? Someone to share about um, who's your one or how that, or what else the Lord is doing in your life these days? I appreciated the, the board meeting. We, we just were honest with each other about what it was that made us hesitant to share the gospel. Sometimes the social implications, the fear that the other person would reject us and all that, and uh, different things. And we talked about the truths that overcome those. But then the, we, the board started on Monday the 30-day um, prayer guide that we're asking the whole church to start starting September 12th. And so it's uh, 30 days, and you, you, um, there's a, a scripture reading and then just a simple prayer, and you can write your person's name in there. And my person is Paul. He's the neighbor next door. And um, and so it's kind of been interesting to pray these prayers and to see how the scriptures that apply pertain exactly to already the fears that I was uh, expressing in our board meeting. So, you know, the Bible is sufficient. And, and it is interesting, you know, every day I'm serious about praying for Paul and praying for my own courage and the right opportunity and today when I came home, I don't see him home hardly at all. I think, he, I think he manages a pizza place, and so he's gone a lot. And so I'm hoping to go just meet him at the pizza place sometime. But um, he was leaving home to go to work, I think, on his motorcycle. And so as I pulled in the driveway, I, I went out the driveway and started going up the sidewalk to see if I could catch him. But he went and turned and didn't see me. So I was trying. So... We'll see, but I, I wanted to at least get an opportunity to talk to him a little bit. He's got a couple of teenage boys that are similar in age to ours, and so, and they did come to VBS once several years ago when our boys were still that age, too. So, anyone else sharing? Okay, well, thank you for coming again tonight.
And what I want us to do tonight is, is to work through a prayer of the Bible, the one that's in Acts chapter 4. And if you remember the storyline here, this is the case where um, Peter and John were going to the temple, and there was that guy who uh, they said, silver and gold, we haven't got it, but, you know, have I none? But what I have, I give to you. And, and so the, the lame man got up and walked, and everybody was amazed, and a lot of people were added to their number. And then the officials came, and they arrested Peter and John, and they spent the night in prison. And then the next day, they, you know, charged them not to speak anymore in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they said with boldness, you know, um, judge for yourself whether it's better to obey God or men. And so that's the story behind this passage. And so the, um, let me read it for us. On the release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And so this is a, a uh, recounting of the general tenor of the prayer of the people. Um, somebody must have led them in this prayer or different ones, but this is the, Luke is recording the essential content of their prayer. And so he says, they started out with sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. And David wrote, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. So this is a, a passage from Psalm 110 that's quoted a lot, or Psalm 2, I'm sorry. And um, indeed, so they continue on, on their own, indeed, Herod, that's the king that was still around, right? And Pontius Pilate, the ruler, they met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and to perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So that's a pretty exciting passage of Scripture, and I have... Um, entitled it, Enable Us to Speak with Boldness. And I've heard some of my favorite preachers preach on this recently. I, Alistair Begg had a message on it. Tim Keller did. And I think another guy, I can't remember, but it wasn't R.C. But, um, so this is, is a relevant passage for our day and age, for sure. And a lot of people are thinking that way. And so let's uh, go through it carefully and see the content of the prayer. And we'll talk about it along the way. And please uh, be ready to participate, and I'll hand you the microphone when you do. But, so it starts out with the reference, Sovereign Lord. <clears throat> they heard this. They raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Why is that such an important place to start with this prayer? What would you think? What are the, what are the reasons that that's so important? 
What's coming on the table here? Well, I always look at this as that they are, first place, they're going and recognizing who the source, uh, who is in control and the source of everything out there. And that's where they need to go for what they're going to ask for. Good. As I read that opening, it actually reminds me of the, the Lord's Prayer, and I'm curious what recollection they had of the prayer he taught them when they, when they started this process. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's an intentional reference to the fatherhood, but the sovereignty of God, that, that they're not talking to a God. They're talking to the one and only God, and they know it. And they realize that he's in charge of all these events. Think about what just happened in the last 48 hours for them, right? The arrest of their leaders and the, the warnings and the escalating conflict. And they know what kind of people Herod and Pilate are. And, they, they, you know, in their minds, their Savior was crucified just a month or less before, right? After Pentecost. And so we don't know how long this is. But in the first year, probably... And nobody has produced the body of Jesus, and so they're ready to they're ready to die too, right? They don't know that there's another two thousand years coming, and so this is pretty urgent for them. So, Sovereign Lord, they said, all right. So that's a, yes, Becky. Yeah. Uh, it also reminds me, Sovereign Lord is how Simeon addresses God when he held baby Jesus in the temple, which is also, I think, uh, tie back to 2 Samuel 7 when David is praying to God after he's promised him um, that he's going to be, he's going to establish his house. He says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised. So, you know, and then also, as they say, but you have created the heavens and earth. It kind of like pulls in the whole story of scripture that, God created everything in the way he wanted, and then he has established his king the way he wanted. He sent Jesus as a baby the way he wanted, and they're kind of acknowledging this is the way he wants, you know, as he's continuing that. Good. Thank you for pointing out and reminding us of that intertextuality that there's, it's a con there's a continuity between the story of the people of God and this moment. So that's an intentional thing on their part, probably, too. All right. So you made everything. That's the second part of their prayer. So, Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Becky's already hinted a little bit of why that's valuable. But what else, what else is this um, telling us as we pray for this boldness? Why, why is this part of the prayer as a preamble? Remember, we're asking God for boldness. What, what does this do for us? We, we know he's in charge, the sovereign Lord, but what about the creation component? Any thoughts? For me, it gets the same idea of why they say sovereign Lord, but it puts God in his place as the big one over everything. And it recalls for me... Um, the psalm, the earth is the Lord's and all that's in it, the world and those who dwell therein. 
um, which just, it's, 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 a, it's humbling ourselves to the identity and the action of God as being so much bigger than any of us. It's also, if God made everything and God's asking me, I want you to do this for the thing that I already made, well, I can do that, you know. Yeah, the authority that God has and the, um, the worthiness of the command to obey it, and it makes sense. When, you, when he says you've made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them, I think there are two admitting that God made them. And, I mean, God made me. So you're subject to the holy, sovereign God. Good. When they need to be um, submissive to God. He's, he's in charge. He has the rights. The other thing that I like that it speaks to me is that um, God is not part of the created order as an acting agent. He's the creator of the created order as an acting agent, right? He's not just in the system struggling to make it work his way. He's the one who made the system, and he's, he's outside of it, but he's still inside of it. And so he's sovereign Lord and the creator. Good. Those are really good meditations. So his request, their request, seven Lord, you made everything. And then the next part of their request is they acknowledge that there is real opposition to their, to them, right? To the kingdom of heaven. And they, so they start by quoting, they go back to historical opposition, right? They go back, you spoke to by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. So this verse, this prophecy of David is fulfilled in the life of Jesus, right? The nations and the leaders, they, they banded together, they arrested Jesus, they turned him over to the nations, to, to Rome, because they had the political authority to kill him. And Jesus was the anointed one. He was the Messiah. And so Jesus is the Christ and the nations, they, they, their plotting is in vain, but there really is tangible, on-purpose opposition. This is not just us misinterpreting somebody. They really do oppose. And then they go on. So they, they did the historical reference, and then they say, right now, indeed, right now in our lives, there's a ruler named Herod and another one named Pontius Pilate, and they met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, again, whom you anointed. So did you see how they picked it up? David said against the Lord and his Messiah, the one, right? His Christ, his christened one, the anointed one. And again, they say it themselves against Jesus, whom you anointed. So they're acknowledging that Jesus is the holy servant, the Christ. So there is real opposition why is that an important piece of understanding? Why, how does that play? What is, what is that, um, how does that encourage us today? Well, if we have a sovereign Lord that made everything, he is in control. Although there is real opposition, 
we know that when we are on his side and doing his will, that whatever happens, it's going to work out. It's, going, it's, it's for the good in his glory. Good. So the, the first point we're making is that this is, there's a comforting reality that God's in charge, so that's good. And even though there is real opposition, we have a reason to be talking to God, right? We're, we're not just uh, calling somebody. It's not like a, in a, a lifeline on a quiz show. Maybe he can help us. No, we know that God can help us because there is real opposition. So that's good. But what is the existence of the real opposition? Why does acknowledging that, um, what role does that play in our thinking? Well, I think sometimes when we hit opposition, we tend to think that it's my fault. You know, I did something wrong. I'm not doing it right. I'm not doing what God wants me to do because I'm hitting all this opposition. But if we acknowledge that there's going to be opposition, then we can just keep plugging away because we know that, like he said, that God is still in control and that opposition isn't just because I did something wrong. Yeah, Peter and John might have considered, oh man, if only we hadn't stirred up the pot, you know, if we had somehow healed this guy more privately. But no, they don't need to, we don't need to worry about making that mistake because the opposition's going to come. And in their prayer, they are acknowledging that God made that all work out. Even the opposition was ordained by God to give glory, to finish Jesus's work, right? You plotted to kill Jesus, but God was working it out to do salvation. And so in the same way, the real opposition is actually under God's control to accomplish something else, to make us, to give us a platform, right? If we don't have an enemy attacking, then maybe our message doesn't stand out in stark contrast, right? It's like the background of the image, the relief. So other thoughts about why the real opposition needs to be acknowledged or why the benefit of that? Any other Components or thinking, Katie. They they just say the opposition is that against Jesus, not them. It's against Jesus, not me. That's a good reminder too. It's not our fault, but it's also it's not personal against us, right? It's against our Lord, and and Jesus would say, if you're going to follow me, you're going to be persecuted. So let them hate me. He's big enough. And don't take it personal. Any other thoughts about why that's such a cool part of the prayer? I'm, I'm not sure this is where we wanted to go, but I was just thinking that as the world and this country continues to go in a direction it is of recognizing sin, as we continue to teach and teach the truth of the Scriptures, and teach Jesus Christ crucified for our sins, you know, we will probably get opposition because people don't want to be reminded of sin. The forces at work in their day are at work in our day, and we might have been lulled into thinking that they weren't in recent years, right? Things were comfortable, but it's getting more obvious that the forces, they don't stand still. 
And that there are, just like there was people who gnashed their teeth in hatred of Stephen, there are people who gnash their teeth in hatred of religion in Jesus today. Um, Betty Kane came to me this morning and she said, I just, I have to tell you a story. Um, she has a, a distant relative. It's like the, the parents of a grandson-in-law, something. So it's a couple layers out. And they're um, suffering, and, and Betty said that she would be praying for them. And they turned to her and said, don't pray for us. We don't believe in God. That's a bunch of God. And she walked away. She was angry with Betty because Betty offered to pray for them in the middle of their suffering. There's cancer and some other things. And Betty said, well, why wouldn't you not want me to pray for you? And she said, because God, so many horrible things have happened to us. There can't be a God. And so they're, they're viciously angry at God for the adversity that's come into their lives. And she asked me, what would you say to them? And, and I said, yeah, suffering is really real, and it's bad. All I can say is that Jesus doesn't like it either, and he experienced the deepest suffering so that we could be saved from that. And so you're right, it is, you know, I, I would acknowledge the pain and not make it small, but I would also say God hates it too, and that's why Jesus had to suffer so greatly to, to make it right. But anyway, there's real opposition, right? This is just a semi-close, or semi, uh, that's not the right word, a distant relative. But nevertheless, just did not even want to hear about prayer. I mean, most people will at least say, hey, why not? I need all the help I can get, right? Even if they don't believe in God. But uh, there was a real opposition. Any other thoughts about this thought of this part of the prayer? So think through it again. The, we're praying to the Lord who's in charge, the sovereign Lord, the one who made everything. He's outside but active in creation. He's the creator. He's the one who has the authority to tell us what to do. And they acknowledge theologically this is not new. This is historically true. It's always been true that the nations plot. And it's always been true that God has been overruling and over of overriding and making it work out his way, what they thought they were doing, God worked out for the salvation of the world. And so even though there's real opposition and it's going on right now, we can do this, right? We, we know there's real opposition, but it's not our fault. It's not personal. And God's in charge of it. And God is in control of this situation too, right? So that's the next part of the prayer. They did, they did, what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So who's the they? That's the Pilate and Herod and the rulers of the people. But look at what they're saying. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. And so even though the nations looked like they were in such power and control, God was beforehand deciding how it all worked out. So he used their anger, their opposition, to advance his message. Why is that so important? We've touched on it a little bit, but they get really explicit here. What's the deal with that verse? Any thoughts? For me, it's a couple of things. It's a reminder of God's sovereignty and his true power in that he can foreknow and pre-plan things 
from eternity past to happen now. You know, events don't happen outside of God's knowledge. There's no whoopsies or accidents. And so that reminds me of that. And then two, it reminds me of way back even in Genesis when um, even Adam's sin with the snake, God said, God, um, what is it called? But foreordains or foretells of Jesus coming even then in the garden um, of, of the snake's destruction, the Jesus to come will crush his head. And so, even from way at the very beginning, and then there's a form of Jesus' sacrifice when God kills animals and clothes Adam and Eve. And so way from the beginning, like God knew it, planned it, and it was to happen. And even though in the moment, there's elements that leave scars that are tragic and horrific, the, you know, the suffering of Jesus, Yet even then, in the long run, those scars and that trials brings beauty in our grace and our forgiveness. This is comforting to me a little bit because with my uh, neighbor, Paul, um, again, their boys were approximately the same age as our boys. And when they were younger, they did play together sometimes, but there was often conflict, and um, Cameron was, uh, Cameron has always had trouble being a friend for very long. Uh, he, because of his uh, trauma and early childhood, he doesn't trust people, so when people get close, he sabotages the relationship. That's how we understand it. And so he's not a very good friend for very long, people get tired of them. And so we haven't, their boys and our boys are not friends at all, actually, anymore. And I don't think they even say anything to each other. They ride the same school bus, but they're not like um, other neighbors. And so that's been a little bit uncomfortable for me. On what basis would I have to go over and, uh, and befriend him again or try to build that relationship but i'm comforted by this that god knew what's going on and it might actually be the um the challenges that we have in our family might actually be the the means by which i can humble myself and and uh and break through that barrier and you know our uh you know, Cameron's choices these days are sorrow, are sad for us, but uh, maybe Paul's boys are making him afraid too, right? Or who, I don't know. I'm, you see what I'm trying to say is that God can work that out even, that he decide beforehand how it should happen. So I'm comforted that God's not rattled by the circumstances in my life that seem to be barriers or make me disqualify you to share. I guess that's minimally what I'm trying to say. Any other thoughts about this verse? Okay, so Sovereign Lord, you made everything. There's real opposition, but even in the middle of all that real opposition, God is in control of this situation too. So whatever we're facing, he's in charge of that one too. And so they ask, so in light of all those things, enable us to speak with boldness. So the next verse is, now Lord, Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. 
Consider their threats. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. It reminds me a little bit of that king of Israel when the, the other army came and says they are, they're going to attack Sennacherib. Is that who the army? I can't remember. Was it Hezekiah was the king? But they, Sennacherib was the general who's going to attack and they, they, they sent a threatening letter and challenged that God of Israel was going to fall like all the other nations. And they, they lay out this letter before God and says, see what this guy is saying? Can you defend us? So it kind of reminds me of that. Consider their threats. This guy is raising himself up against, or like Goliath, right? You defy the, the Lord God of Israel. And so um, see their threats and enable your servants to speak the word with great boldness. What is this? Uh, what is this? Add to your thoughts here. I guess I think of boldness and bravery, and um, that doesn't mean you're not scared or it's um, you're not frightened, but you do it anyway. You still move forward, and um, I, I guess that's what it is. You you do it even when you're afraid. Yeah, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is doing the right thing when you're afraid, right? If you're not afraid, that's not courage. That's just not being afraid. But it, courage is, is doing right in the face of fear. Yeah. Katie. It's interesting that it's, my Lord, you consider their threats, not me consider your, their threats. But so have God think about their threats. And then enable your servant. So just give me enough boldness to get through this, you know. And so obviously, God's not threatened by them, you know. And so I feel like that's an interesting. Am I making sense? I think it's also neat that uh, they're acknowledging that unless God enables them, they're not going to be bold, right? This is not my strength that's going to be, I need your help, God. You need to enable our servants. And then to speak with great boldness, you know, part of what, um, it doesn't mean that we're loud or cocky or arrogant in our presentation, but it does kind of mean that we're not timid and afraid, you know, it, is it okay, please, please, can you please listen to me? You know, you know I don't think that it's speaking, hey, this is what really happened. I was a sinner, and Jesus saved me from my sin, and he's the greatest. Becky? But along with Katie, what Katie said, it's his word, not our own, with great boldness. So when we speak boldly, we need to be careful that we're not preaching our own kingdom, but the kingdom of heaven. Uh, little, I heard something uh, on the radio, and I'm not even sure because I'm driving, so I don't remember the context, but it was one man had written a book, and one of the things he talked about, and uh, it was why some people were leaving the church, and he said, in some of these uh, seeker-friendly churches, a lot of times they uh, they they kind of soft pedal some of the problems and and some of the sins that are out in the world. You know, they say, "Well, we don't want to really offend anybody," you know, and and have them leave because we're they're seeking. 
and so they never really deal strongly with sin. And uh, and that just reminded me of uh, with uh, an attic. Uh, those of us, I think every one of us, have not shied away from talking about uh, the sin of the day. You're, you know, LGBTQ, things like that, and basically saying, look, we're speaking God's word, and this is what he says. And, and, and uh, I remember the first time Darwin was talking, I heard Darwin talking about that. It was like, I think the kids were, what? <laughs> you know, they were shocked. They were truly shocked. So, uh, yeah, we need to speak the word with boldness, all of it. If we don't understand what sin is and how it affects us and, and the end of it, what good is it? Uh, nobody's going to come to Christ if there's no reason to. Well said. And that it is, there is a call to be bold to the, the issues of our day. And a doctor doesn't help you at all by saying, well, it, it might be something bad someday for you. You know, it's just some junk in your life. No, it's cancer and we got to do something or you're going to die. You know, that which which doctor loves you the most? And um, and the truth is the truth in love is for sure the truth. And love without truth is not love at all. Right? You're not loving anybody to say what's not true. So we can be confident that God's word is worth saying, even if it's culturally passe. Any other thoughts on this? So those are the five requests, the five parts of the structure of this cool prayer. Sovereign Lord, you, sovereign Lord, you made everything. We know that there's real opposition. It's been done before. It's going on right now. But you're in control of this one, too. And so enable us to speak boldness. And then they ask for one more thing. Show your power in the name of Jesus. So they ask God to demonstrate his power. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What are they asking for here? And should we ask for the same? or not, or what's different in our day. What do you think about this one? This is a little, they ask for boldness, and they ask for God's hand to do signs and wonders through the name of Jesus, like had happened yesterday, right? The day before yesterday, this prayer, Peter and John said, silver and gold I have I none, but what I have I give to in the name of Jesus. And they just got done saying, you all need to understand that this was not by our power and might, but it was in the name of Jesus that this man was healed. So what part of the prayer? How does this fit for us? What do you think? If someone isn't going to accept Christ, unless Jesus is there performing a sign and wonder and opening their eyes to understanding who he is. So that's what we should pray for, for that kind of miracle. So minimally, what we're talking about is the miracle of opening up blind eyes. So minimally, that's a sign of 
That's a, that is a sign and wonder, really, for an LGBT uh, radical advocate to turn away from their sin or from a drug addict to escape the idolatry that it is in their life or, or from just a, a, a selfish person to overcome their selfishness. So those are truly signs and wonders. So minimally, that's what that would mean, too. What else do you think is going on? Wouldn't it be great? It would be great if, I, if we could do a healing, right? That would, if Jesus needs to do that, and in some context, he does apparently, right, still, and he can, uh, he can do that today. Other thoughts about this? I just, when I was, when I was reading this, it reminded me of when I was in college up in the UP. I worked in the library, and... Uh, there was, it was a person that all of us knew. I had met him after he had become a Christian, but, uh, but I had heard some stories about what he was like before he became a Christian and what he had become after that. And the way the discussions were going, it was like, well, he found religion type of a thing, you know. And I got, it just reminded me of the word, of the words, even if a man should rise from the dead, they will not believe. And I was thinking, now there was a man who for all intents and purposes was dead in trespasses and sin. He is now saved. He's living a totally different life. He's a, a respected man in the community now. He rose from the dead. And these people still would not believe. <laughs> so. Yeah, that is a good reminder um, that reminds me also of, like you said, you quoted from the story of uh, the rich man in, in Lazarus. Is that his name? Yeah. And in, in that um, he, the rich man wanted Lazarus to go back and tell his brothers. And Abraham answers, they have Moses and the prophets. If they won't believe those words, they won't believe even though someone raises from the dead. And this one telling that story, irony of ironies, raises from the dead within that month, right? This is Jesus telling this story, and it's his last year within the years of his ministry. And he raises from the dead, and the, his enemies knew it was him because they paid the guards to watch. And they got the reports, and they saw everything that happened, and they, they still would not believe. And so there is, there is danger in thinking that, Signs and wonders are the only way or the means through which a person will finally believe in Jesus. And that's not the truth. The truth is the word is sufficient and the word does it. So in this case, um, I think that they're asking God for powers to demonstrate the authenticity of their message because they didn't have the New Testament written for them yet, right? They didn't have John 3.16 that they could show to somebody. They didn't have Romans 10, you know, 8 and 9. They didn't have Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 10, right? They didn't have those things yet. And so part of the signs and wonders are to authenticate the teaching of the apostles. So that's possibly true too. But all that being said, I don't want to diminish the fact we're asking God to do some amazing things. In my heart, I need a miracle to have me not be afraid and to be bold and to, 
to change my value system so that, and again, whatever it is, it's in the name of the Holy Servant, Jesus, not in our name. Hey, there's a big healing ministry going on down at Wyoming Park Bible. That must be messed up if that's how it gets spread, right? It's got to be Jesus did something, right? Jesus' name. Any other thoughts about that? I don't want to back off and miss the power of this request, but I also want to put it in the context of the whole New Testament. Any thoughts? Yeah. Um, my thought came to me is how we hear testimonies from other believers, how God has worked in their lives, which is a miracle. Um, I know in my sister's life, she shared a lot of things with me and the power of God in her life. And to me, her testimony is more real than someone just um, her example and is more than someone just talking and telling someone they're a sinner and they need to be saved with going to that person in a superior way like I know everything and I think when you speak to someone personally you need to respect them as a person not a project and um I think sharing your story is the most important thing, how God changed your life, for them to listen to you. Amen. That's a really good reminder. that, And it takes the pressure off of us, right? We aren't out trying to promote a program in that sense, right? We're talking about Jesus and what he's done. And for us to not understand the miracle of what he's done in our own lives is for us to not understand him. Right? He has made, I can't do what he's done to me. He's, he's made me different. And, and being able to share that with a person does take us out of the, I'm arguing to persuade you of these things with, hey, I'm just a witness. I've seen what Jesus did to me, and I'm telling you what he did to me, and it's pretty, and there's truth. I can share the truth, but the, all of those truths, they played out and manifested themselves in my life. And so it's not me that's smart, it's Jesus that's cool, right? And so I think that's a really good, I, did I hear you correctly? I think that's good, yeah. So that's encouraging. Well, those are the six components of the prayer, and look what happened. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly, right? So God answered their prayer, to speak the, his word boldly, but they also were filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? There's a lot of things that could mean, but what are, what are some ways you would explain what it means? God gave them an extra blessing that they didn't specifically ask for, if I'm, if I'm reading it right. So what is this being filled with the Holy Spirit? What does that mean? If, when, what's it like when you're full of the Holy Spirit? How would you answer that? For we're running out of time, and I'm in. There's probably uh, two or three volumes of theology that could be written on that particular phrase, but I've heard it uh, recently um, described as 
just really getting it, what Jesus has done for us. When we really get, when we love Jesus and we see what he's done for us and we're motivated by his love for us, when we catch on, oh, wow, he, he, I lost it all and he paid it all for me and I get it all. When we get that, when the gospel is full in our hearts, that's what it means to be full. Because that's what the Holy Spirit wants to do. Jesus said the Holy Spirit is going to testify about me and he's going to convict the world of sin and of judgment and righteousness. And I'm telling you, if we understand what Jesus is all about, it's so easy to talk about Jesus because we love him so much. That's what it's like to be full of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants Jesus to get all the glory. And so when we get Jesus, all the glory in our thinking, we're full of the Holy Spirit. I don't think it means necessarily more fancy things than that. I don't think it has to have other components per se. I don't think it's separate. I think it's just totally getting the gospel so much that we love Jesus and we talk, we speak the word of God boldly. It's the way that God enables us. Well, let me pray. Sovereign Lord, you made everything. You are in our creation. We know that there's real opposition in our world to the message of Jesus. I fight the opposition in my own life. I, I'm even one of the opposers in my sinful nature. And so I need your help. But I understand that you're in control of, of all of this opposition and nothing rattles you and, and that you're, you're, you're letting the world be dark so that the light of Jesus can be seen in bright contrast. And so, Father, we ask that you would enable us to speak the word boldly, your word boldly, not our fancy phrases, not our, not our theology, but your truth, Jesus. May we speak it boldly. And we ask that you would show your power in our lives, show people that, that you are amazing, even if it's miraculous signs. We don't want to put you in a box. But even if it's not, we already testify that you have done miracles in our life. And may it be true of us that, that when we look back on these months to come, that, you, that we could describe ourselves as having been in a place that was shaken, that we were full of your spirit, and we spoke your word boldly. And we pray and ask these things. We beg for you to help us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.